0: If you would, let's take, your, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Leviticus chapter 8. And I'm going to be reading the whole of that chapter. It's, a, it's not super long, but it is um, a, a little bit of a long reading. Let's give our attention to the reading of the Word of God. And as is our custom, would you please stand in honor of that reading if you are able and willing. Leviticus chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water, and he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with a robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses." Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of, of the sin offering and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and, took, and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull in its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp. As the Lord commanded Moses, then he presented the ram of the burn offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat at the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it. And the bread that's in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall shall not go outside of the, the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die, for so I had been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, this indeed is your word. And we would ask that you would take your word and meet it with your spirit and do what you will in our hearts and in our lives. Mold us and make us into the men, women, and children that you've called us to be. Oh Lord, in this passage, and there is much here, we won't get to nearly uh, all, all of what's here. But Lord, from that part, that you, would you take the reading of your word and press it upon our hearts? Take the preaching of your word, meet it with your spirit, and work in us. Would you exalt the name of the living Christ in our midst? Would you glorify your name? And would you change us, we ask, in the name of and for the sake of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in uh, Leviticus 1 to 7, if you'll remember, and if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been studying this book for the last several weeks, and we've covered the first seven uh, chapters. And in those first seven chapters, we've had all of these offerings and sacrifices that have been laid out before us. Many of those, those, those sacrifices that we've studied were those uh, spontaneous kind of free will offerings to be given before the Lord. And we've had instructions for the everyday worshiper as they bring their offering before the Lord. And we've also had some instruction for the priest of, um, um, and what's required of them. And yet what's not happened yet is worship. Public worship has yet to begun here at the tabernacle. I mean, the tabernacle's complete, that place where the Lord meets with his people, that place where God dwells, but the people haven't yet worshiped. And remember, that's really been the issue, hasn't it? We've learned that in our study in these first seven chapters. How do sinful people approach the all-holy God? And God has answered that. God has answered that through this sacrificial system here in the Old Covenant. And again, as we learned early on, the people of God in Adam and Eve, they were kicked out of the garden of God, out of the presence of God, And so the question is, how will the people of God enter back into the garden of God? That's been the question that we've wrestled with. It's been the question that we're learning that Leviticus begins to answer. And how is that answer? By sacrifice or through sacrifice offered by the priest. And what we have here in Leviticus chapter 8. And though your bulletin says... Uh, chapters 8 to 10, I realize that. We've corrected that up here. Well, it wasn't a correction. It was actually a change. I've changed that a bit because we're going to camp just here in chapter 8 this week. And then we'll come back to 9 and 10 next week. Because chapter 8 is just so rich. We're not even going to get, even this morning, even taking chapter 8 by itself, we're not going to get into all that this morning. In fact, we're pretty much going to be concentrating on just the first half of chapter 8. And there'll be opportunities as we come back to chapter 9 and 10 next week to kind of pick up at the end there in, in chapter 8 to lead us into 9 and 10. But chapter 8 has a lot to say to us about God, about who He is, has a lot to say to us about His people about God's presence among his people. And ultimately, it has a lot to say to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just as we, as we see all of these things leading us to him as our high priest, but it has a lot to say to us about what Jesus has accomplished in his work for sinners like you and like me. And it's to those things that I want to draw our attention this morning. And we have here... And Leviticus 8, a wonderful ceremony. And we're no strangers to ceremonies. We, we practice them all the time. We participate in them all the time. In fact, a, an, an easy one is the wedding ceremony. And think about, think about the purpose of a ceremony for just a moment. A ceremony actually brings about a change in status for the participants of the ceremony. Think about a wedding. Um, In a wedding, you have two people, two singles who come in. They take their vows and then they walk down the aisle and they are what now? They're now a married couple. A change of status from single to now married. And same thing we could even say about a graduation ceremony. You're once a student and now you are a graduate. A change in status for the participants and ceremonies are important I mean they again they communicate important things uh, they communicate important things to us and we have that here in Leviticus chapter 8 and not only do we have the ceremony but we also have all the pomp and the and the circumstance that goes along with a ceremony you know I've always been a fan of a good uniform uh, whether it's a sports team, and, you know, in the summertime, uh, particularly I'm a, I'm a football fan, but in the summertime when all these schools or the teams come out with their new uniforms, you're like, I like that one. I like that new helmet. And, and those n- cool uniforms, there's just something about them that I really like. And the uniforms do something, don't they? I mean, they, they set apart the team as the team. And I love especially how kids call them costumes instead of uniforms. I love that. But they're not just costumes. They're uniforms. They serve a a purpose. I mean, it could be a a sports team. It could be a band uniform. And and especially a military uniform. Because wearing a uniform says something about the position that that person holds, doesn't it? At least it should. It used to. And it should. I remember one of our football coaches in college used to always say just before the game, and I get tickled every time I think about it. And I think you'll understand why I get tickled about it in just a moment. But every time before a game, one of our coaches would stand up and it was meant to encourage us. And he would say something like this. Young men, when you put on this uniform, you are a rice owl. Uh Uh-huh. That just kind of falls flat, doesn't it? Just kind of falls flat. Can you think of any more kind of boring name and mascot from the rice owl? But his point was this, wasn't it? When you put on this uniform, you are representing something other than just yourself. You are representing all those who you're with and you are representing the things that we stand for. Something bigger than yourself. And think about the military uniforms. I mean, some of them are quite plain, quite simple. But even those communicate something about that position. But some of them, especially, especially when you get to three and four-star generals with a lot of experience... There can be quite a bit of dec- decoration there, can't there? You add the medals of achievement or certain accomplishments and so forth. And there can be a lot of cir- uh, pomp and circumstance, even on one person's uniform. And it says something about the position that that person holds, doesn't it? It sets him apart. It sets him apart. Well, here in Leviticus 8, the priests, those who represent the people before God, are set apart for this particular role. And I want us to note three things as we look at this passage, because I want us to look at the three parts of the ordination service. And I said earlier that we're really probably only going to cover about the first half of this Because as I began to study this ordination service, these three things just began to to, um, continue to press upon my own heart of what God has done for sinners like us as it's represented even in the ordination service of these priests. Because as we look, we find that there's three steps. They are cleansed. They are clothed. And they are consecrated. Cleansed, clothed, and consecrated. And as we walk through this together, then I want us to keep in mind something. Let's keep in mind what Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews teaches us about Jesus. That is to say that he is our great high priest, that we remember that all this pomp and circumstance and even the priests in the old covenant are to point us to our perfect high priest, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's let's remember that. But let's also remember this. Let's also remember of who we are in him. So not just who Jesus is in his person, but remember what Jesus has done in his work. For sinners like you and like me. Because after all, we are indeed a kingdom of priests. Let that sit in the back of your mind as we walk through this ordination service. So let's look first to to cleansed. As we begin chapter 8 here, we see that familiar marker that this is a new section. We've learned that. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Here's a new section again. And we're moving, again, we're moving from all the detailed instructions of the sacrifices and the offerings to now to this ordination service, to this, to the setting of Aaron and his sons in this ordination service as priest, and Aaron as the high priest. And and we're gonna see. Uh, we'll have the privilege of seeing the wonder of this again in chapter nine, uh, and in fact, in chapter nine, we're going to get to see it a bit more clearly than we do here. But it's, but it's almost like subtly introduced to us here in chapter eight. Let's not lose sight of the fact that that God's grace and restoration is put on display here, even in this service. And I think sometimes we do. That. I think. Sometimes we'll read something like Leviticus and we can get all lost in the in the in in the trees and and we or in the forest and not really see what God has put out there for us. I think this is one of those times. Moses is to take Aaron and his sons and he's to set this all up, um, all the all the things that they need for this particular ceremony. We read the garments, Um, the oil and the bull and the two rams and the basket of bread and all of those things and they're to be brought and 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 they're also to assemble the congregation and so the service here takes place at the entrance of the tent of meeting what is that for well that's to show us that it's taking place here in the presence of god and then all the congregation is assembled and they are to gather out here and it's to take place in this, uh, before the assembly of the people in the sight of God and in the sight of the people. And we're reminded, aren't we? Even think of a, think of a wedding. We don't often think about this enough when we take vows together. And when a husband and a wife or a bride and a groom take vows together, they're not just promising before the witnesses who have gathered in a Christian wedding. They are taking promises before God and before witnesses. God is in their midst. And the same thing is true here. But who is it? Well, of course, we've got Moses, right? Right. The one whom God had used to bring his people out of Egypt. But it's not Moses. It's not Moses who's being ordained here as the high priest. Moses is in the role of the mediator of the old covenant. Okay. Now Moses is not the mediator of the new covenant. There's only one of the, or excuse me, of the covenant of grace. That's the Lord Jesus. Moses is the mediator of the old covenant. In that administration of the covenant of grace. But Moses only points to that one to, who was to come. But here Moses is in the role of the mediator of the old covenant. And he's, he's conducting this service. The one being ordained as high priest is Aaron. And I said a moment ago that God's grace and restoration is being put on display. How do we see that? It's Aaron. Remember Aaron? Aaron. It wasn't too long ago that Aaron himself had taken upon himself an illegitimate role before the people of God. You remember what Aaron had done? He he took upon himself that illegitimate priestly role. When he wanted to represent God to the people and represent the people to God, Moses, remember in Exodus chapter 32, Moses was taking a little bit too long on the mountain. And Aaron does what? And Aaron takes gold from among the people and he fashions it into a golden calf. And it was said to the people of Israel, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Let that sink in for just a moment. Here is Aaron, who not only has led God's people astray, but has led God's people into idolatry. And now... What we have here, we might be able to say, what we have here is the chief sinner in Israel becoming the high priest in Israel. Now that's the grace of God, isn't it? And what can we learn by that? Well, we certainly can learn that no sin is too big for the blood of Jesus. No sin puts you outside of the reach of, of God's grace. And maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. Be reminded of that this morning. That no sin puts you beyond the reach of God's grace. That's good news, isn't it? And, and we learned something about the earthly priests here too, don't we? I mean, were they chosen because they were the most holy among the people? Well... Aaron Aaron ought to show that immediately to us that that's not the case. They weren't chosen because they were the most holy. They weren't chosen because they were the most righteous. These priests were just like anyone else in the midst of Israel. And because of that, they needed to be cleansed, they needed to be set apart. For this particular role that God was calling them to. Whether it's Old Covenant priests. Or ministers in the New Covenant. They need to be set apart. They need to be cleansed. For the work of the Lord. Because why? Because whether it's Old Testament priests. Or whether it's New Covenant ministers. They cannot offer what only Jesus can. They cannot offer what only Jesus can. One of my roles as a minister of the gospel is to not point you to me and to say, hey, I can fix you. Because guess what? I can't fix you. I can't even fix myself, much less fixing you. And that's exactly what Hebrews teaches us. It's exactly why the priest had to be cleansed before all of this. Because they can't fix themselves either. They're completely dependent upon something else. Part of my role as a minister of the gospel is to point you to the Lord Jesus. In fact, I would argue that that's my main role. To point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. I was preparing to preach um, this last week as well to Christ Church Bentonville this afternoon from John 10 uh, for Aaron's ordination service. Not this Aaron, that would be confusing. Aaron reigns his ordination service this afternoon. By the way, if you would like to go, they'll worship together at five o'clock this afternoon in Bentonville, if you, downtown there, if you would like to go and be part of Aaron's uh, ordination service. But at any rate, as I was preparing for that sermon as well this past week, I was reminded of Calvin's statement that's also appropriate here as well. And he says this, he says, they, are, they alone are good shepherds who lead men straight to Christ. Earthly priests nor ministers can do what only Christ can do. Because even these priests are in need of cleansing. And that's part of the importance of this ceremony. We see in verse 6 that the first thing to be done is the washing. It says, And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. I mentioned in the introduction that ceremonies bring a change of status to the participant. And here, this ceremony was moving Aaron and his sons to a position of holiness. Let me say that again because I want that to sink in for a minute because I want to make this follow-up point. This ceremony was moving Aaron and his sons to a position of holiness. Now, that is not to say... That the water here is what removes their iniquity. Remember, this is ritualistic. This was a ritual purification. But what water in this ceremony does ritualistically, the work of the Lord in the life of a sinner does truly. We think of baptism here. Baptism does what it sets apart. It identifies one as being part of the covenant people of God, but what water baptism points, uh, but what, what water and baptism points to there is the reality of the work of the Lord Jesus in the hearts of sinners. And it's His work that truly makes clean and pure. The water in baptism points to that, but it only points to that. And the imagery here in Leviticus 8 is, is so rich. Again, one of the reasons I switched from preaching chapters 8 to 10 is because of that richness of the imagery. Not just reminding us that the Lord Jesus is our high priest. Not in any need of cleansing of himself, but the imagery to what the Lord Jesus accomplishes for sinners like us. We we sing often, He has washed us in His blood. He has washed us in His blood. Brothers and sisters, we have been made clean in Christ Jesus, not just ritualistically, but we've been made clean truly. Washed from the stain of sin And not just washed, not just cleansed, and then kind of left naked and exposed and just as likely to get dirty again because we would, wouldn't we? And this is why this is so important to understand our standing before the Lord positionally. Because once He cleanses us, and then as we're going to find, once He clothes us, we're cleansed and clothed clothed. That's how he sees us in Christ Jesus. So we're not just washed or just cleansed and then left open and exposed. Notice the next step in the ordination service. And he put the coat on him, tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him, tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with a band. And he placed the breast piece on him. And in the breast piece, he put the urim and the thumim. Uh, and he set the turban on his head. And on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown as the Lord commanded it. Moses, so he's cleansed and then he's clothed with beautiful array. Why? Because he's, he's been he's been set apart to carry out a particular role, and the role is important. It's to represent the the people before God. It is to minister in the name of the Lord. And notice the clothing. Notice the clothing. A coat and a robe, and a breastpiece, pa- breast and a turban, and a crown. That sounds like a what? Sounds like a king, doesn't it? It sounds just like a king. And remember, at this time in Israel's history, they didn't have a king. Why? Because the Lord is the king. God is king. So why the kingly regalia? Well, I love the way that Jay Sklar puts it. He says such royal clothing would have reminded the Israelites that the high priest was part of a royal administration. He led the royal attendance of the heavenly king who was dwelling in the midst of the kingdom people in his holy palace. And that makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense, doesn't it? For after all, God had had told the people through Moses in Exodus 19, looking backward, you shall be my treasured possession He says, among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Brothers and sisters, this is what you are in Christ Jesus. And I know that there's a lot of things we could have spent our time on in in Leviticus 8, and we could have gone through all the details of the sacrifices and all of those types of things. But, But if you don't hear anything else today... Hear this, you are a kingdom of priests in Christ Jesus. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2. Uh, I know in the first service, Brandon mentioned it to the children. I think he did in the second service as well. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. John says it this way in Revelation 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by, the blood, by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What we see here done for the priest is truly done for you in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. What we see here done for the priest is truly done. For you in Christ Jesus. He has washed you. He has cleansed you. He's clothed you with kingly robes as a priest before the Lord. The prophet Isaiah says it this way. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And then the Apostle Paul following that up to follow up Isaiah. Listen to what Paul says. For our sake he made him, who knew, who, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not just cleansed, but the righteousness of God clothed, you've been covered, you've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then we come to the last part then, at least again the part before the three main sacrifices of the service take place and it's the consecration or the anointing. But even even before Moses gets to the anointing and the consecration of Aaron something takes place first first the tabernacle and everything in it as well as the altar and the utensils the basin in the courtyard all of it were to be was to be anointed even the objects in the temple needed to be set apart and prepared for the worship of the living God and we learn something there don't we And we don't think about this in the 21st century like we ought. We don't think about this in Western Christianity as we ought. The worship of the living God is a serious and wonderful matter. And this is part of what's being communicated to the people of Israel here. You don't approach God in your own way. God's worship is done God's way. That's part of what's being communicated here. We worship in the way that God has prescribed us to worship. Ligon Duncan quotes uh, a David Peterson here. And he says, in worship, we come to God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. I love the way that he says that because there are two things emphasized there. You see, it wasn't just that God only wanted his people to know how holy he is. And certainly he does because he wants to be known. And God is Holy and he is just and he is righteous and i might even say it this way god not only wants to know want us to know how powerful and yes even dangerous he is not only that but also that he has made it possible for sinners to approach I mean, we get stuck sometimes on the first part, don't we? And even those that, sometimes those to whom we minister, they get stuck on the, on the first part. We don't want to hear how holy and righteous and just and dangerous God is. Don't tell us those things. And, and because they don't want to hear that thing, the precious news of the gospel that God has prepared away doesn't mean anything to them. Because they think they can approach God in any old way that they please. And what we learn here in Leviticus is, no, you can't. No, you can't. But the good news is, is that God, is, God has prepared a way. And of course, we know in the fullness of God's revelation that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see God's grace here in Leviticus as much as we see His holiness. God's made a way. The world cries, well, it's not fair. The Bible proclaims, God's made a way. Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's more than fair. It's more than fair. That's grace. That's grace. And, he, and even here, the, the objects were set apart, but so too were the priests. Verse 12 says, and he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. He, he's consecrated for service. He's set apart for service and he's empowered unto that service. I don't know about you, but when I first um, was reading this and about the, the washing and the robing and the anointing or the, Cleansing and the clothing and the consecrating, I couldn't help but to think of the baptism of Jesus. I mean there's John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, baptizing jesus and we and we may immediately think, well, wait a minute, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. Jesus didn't need the washing, did he? no he he didn't have to be cleansed. He didn't have to be washed. No, he didn't. But Jesus himself tells us why he did this. Jesus was baptized, in his own words, to fulfill all righteousness. To identify with sinners like you and me. To be obedient to the nth degree, as it were. And, but do you remember what, immediately after he was baptized, do you remember what happened? It wasn't the anointing with oil. But behold, it says The heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Jesus here at his baptism is set apart for his task, set apart for his mission. And that's not just me saying that and and attributing a purpose to his baptism that's not there. He himself says in Luke 4 that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What we see there is that, that setting apart for a particular ca- uh, a task and role. And here, back with the priests, again, they needed to be cleansed. They needed to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But they too now are set apart for a particular task, a particular role. I mentioned a few moments ago that passage from 1 Peter. And did you notice the last part in 1 Peter? Where it talks about us being uh, a chosen people, a holy nation. But then at the very end it says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've been cleansed. You've been clothed so that you might proclaim. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? It shouldn't surprise us. Because it's it's what priests do. It's what priests do. And you are a holy priesthood in Christ Jesus. I mentioned earlier that there's a lot here. And again, we're not even really close to getting to all of it. We still have those three sacrifices that we could go into detail with. But they're they're not a lot different than what we've already studied. There's a few differences and emphases there we might want to consider. But here in the context of the priest, a clear reminder is here for us. One, that these priests, and I've mentioned this, can't do what Jesus does. They must. They must have sacrifices made for themselves. But not the one to whom they point. To the Lord Jesus, who is the righteous one who doesn't need an offering made for himself. Because why? Well, John the Baptist declares why, doesn't he? As John the Baptist stands up and he proclaims as he sees Jesus coming, he says what? Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus doesn't need to be cleansed because He's the perfect Lamb of God. And I wanted to remind us this morning and I know it's about time to close. Let me let me leave you with this. Again, there's a lot more that we could cover. But at the end of Jesus' baptism, at the end of that baptism, it says, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. What an encouragement. For us in Christ Jesus. All throughout chapter 8 there was a common refrain. And I haven't mentioned it yet. You may have noticed it as I read. But that common refrain was. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. Or as the Lord commanded Moses. Over and over and over and over again we saw it. Moses was faithful in the house of God as a servant. He did what the Lord had asked him to do. Obedience to the word of God. Obedience is a a major theme running through Leviticus chapter 8. And sometimes I think as we hear these things, these detailed instructions, the precision of God's uh, word, and maybe even, Maybe even the meticulousness of His law. For example, maybe even for us as New Covenant believers, where, we, where we're reading in Matthew 5-7, to and Jesus says, you've heard it was said this, but I say unto you, and we all feel the weight of the law of God, and we, and we want to cry out, even as we often sing, oh, who may stand before thee? Do you ever feel that way? And you really think about the law of God and what His standard is. And what he expects. Oh, who may stand before thee. And then here. The father says to the Lord Jesus. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And you say, yeah, but what does that have to do with me? Brothers and sisters, it has everything to do with you and me. The author of Hebrews As Adam read earlier in the New Testament reading, Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And listen to this part. And we are his house. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Where is our hope? It's in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Son to whom the Father has said, this is my Son in whom I well please. Dear brother and sister in Christ this morning, be encouraged. Take heart and even rejoice. Even rejoice. For if you are in Christ Jesus, and and this is, we we've been we've been cleansed, we've been clothed, we've been consecrated, and we've been and, and as consecrated and set apart for Him to be to be a a, the, a kingdom of priests and to do so and to live in the midst of a world that has turned its back on the Lord. And I don't know about you, in so many ways, sometimes we look out at the world and we say, oh my goodness, look at all of those things that are going on. Sure, look at all that that's going on. And it shouldn't surprise us in a world apart from the Lord. But you are a chosen nation, a priest, a kingdom of priests. How is it that we live in the midst of that? Do we stand firm? Are we standing firm in the midst of that? You're not part of the world. You're part of his kingdom. You belong to him. And so this morning, rejoice. For if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been cleansed. You have been clothed. You have been consecrated. And the God of heaven and earth has said, I am well pleased. I'm well pleased. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank you that you are well pleased with those found in your son Jesus because of him. You are well pleased with him and we in us. And Lord, as people that belong to you, may we living in this world, may we, as Brandon said with the children, may we hear your word and may we heed it. And Lord, may we serve with our hand. And Lord, may we go with our feet. For we have that which the world needs. And it is not more education, it is not more money, it is not more knowledge, it is not more government, it is not more medicine. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. And to us it's been given. Lord, would you encourage our hearts this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.